Chapter sixty six, part two of the history of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, volume six. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume Six, by Edward Gibbon. Chapter sixty six Union of the Greek and Latin Churches, Part two. During the period of the Crusades, the Greeks beheld with astonishment and terror the perpetual stream of emigration that flowed, and continued to flow, from the unknown climates of their West. The visits of their last emperors removed the veil of separation, and they disclosed to their eyes the powerful nations of Europe, whom they no longer presumed to brand with the name of barbarians. The observation of Manuel and his more inquisitive followers have been preserved by a Byzantine historian of the times. His scattered ideas I shall collect in a bridge, and it may be amusing enough, perhaps instructive, to contemplate the rude pictures of Germany, France, and England, whose ancient and modern state are so familiar to our minds. 1. Germany, says the Greek, Calcondiles, is of ample latitude from Vienna to the ocean, and it stretches, a strange geography, from Prague to Bohemia in the river Tartessus and the Pyrenean Mountains. The soil, except in figs and olives, is sufficiently fruitful. The air is salubrious, the bodies of the natives are robust and healthy, and these cold regions are seldom visited with the calamities of pestilence or earthquakes. After the Scythians or Tartars, the Germans are the most numerous of nations. They are brave and patient, and, were they united under a single head, their force would be irresistible. By the gift of the Pope they have acquired the privilege of choosing the Roman Emperor, nor is any people more devoutly attached to the faith and obedience of the Latin patriarch. The greatest part of the country is divided among the princes and prelates, but Strasbourg, Cologne, Hamburg, and more than two hundred free cities are governed by sage and equal laws, according to the will, and for the advantage of the whole community. The use of duels, or single combats on foot, prevails among them in peace and war. Their industry excels in all the mechanic arts, and the Germans may boast of the invention of gunpowder and cannon, which is now diffused over the greatest part of the world. 2. The kingdom of France is spread above fifteen or twenty days' journey from Germany to Spain, and from the Alps to the British Ocean, containing many flourishing cities, and among these Paris, the seat of the king, which surpasses the rest in riches and luxury. Many princes and lords alternately wait in his palace, and acknowledge him as their sovereign, the most powerful are the dukes of Britannia and Burgundy, of whom the latter possesses the wealthy province of Flanders, whose harbours are frequented by the ships and merchants of our own, and the more remote seas. The French are an ancient and opulent people, and their language and manners, though somewhat different, are not dissimilar from those of the Italians. Vain of the imperial dignity of Charlemagne, of their victories over the Saracens, and of the exploits of their heroes, Oliver and Roland, they esteem themselves the first of the western nations, but this foolish arrogance has been recently humbled by the unfortunate events of their wars against the English, the inhabitants of the British island. 3. Britain, in the ocean and opposite to the shores of Flanders, may be considered either as one or as three islands, but the whole is united by common interest, by the same manners, and by a similar government. The measure of its circumference is five thousand stadia. The land is overspread with towns and villages, though destitute of wine, and not abounding in fruit-trees, it is fertile in wheat and barley, in honey and wool, and much cloth is manufactured by the inhabitants. 
In populousness and power, in riches and luxury, London, the metropolis of the isle, may claim a preeminence over all the cities of the west. It is situate on the Thames, a broad and rapid river, which at the distance of thirty miles falls into the Gallic Sea, and the daily flow and ebb of the tide affords a safe entrance and departure to the vessels of commerce. The king is head of a powerful and turbulent aristocracy. His principal vassals hold their estates by a free and unalterable tenure, and the laws define the limits of his authority and their obedience. The kingdom has been often afflicted by foreign conquest and domestic sedition. But the natives are bold and hardy, renowned in arms and victorious in war. The form of their shields or targets is derived from the Italians, that of their swords from the Greeks, the use of the longbow is the peculiar and decisive advantage of the English. Their language bears no affinity to the idioms of the continent. In the habits of domestic life they are not easily distinguished from their neighbours of France, but the most singular circumstance of their manners is their disregard of conjugal honour and of female chastity. In their mutual visits, as the first act of hospitality, the guest is welcomed in the embrace of their wives and daughters. Among friends they are lent and borrowed without shame, nor are the islanders offended at this strange commerce and its inevitable consequences. Informed as we are of the customs of old England and assured of the virtue of our mothers, we may smile at the credulity or resent the injustice of the Greek, who must have confounded a modest salute with a criminal embrace. But his credulity and injustice may teach an important lesson, to distrust the accounts of foreign and remote nations, and to suspend our belief of every tale that deviates from the laws of nature and the character of man. After his return and the victory of Timor, Manuel reigned many years in prosperity and peace. As long as the sons of Bajazet solicited his friendship and spared his dominions, he was satisfied with the national religion, and his leisure was employed in composing twenty theological dialogues for its defence. The appearance of the Byzantine ambassadors at the Council of Constance announces the restoration of the Turkish power, as well as of the Latin Church. The conquest of the sultans, Mohammed and Amurath, reconciled the emperor to the Vatican, and the siege of Constantinople almost tempted him to acquiesce in the double procession of the Holy Ghost. When Martin V ascended without a rival the chair of St. Peter, a friendly intercourse of letters and embassies was revived between the East and West. Ambition on one side, and distress on the other, dictated the same decent language of charity and peace. The artful Greek expressed a desire of marrying his six sons to Italian princesses, and the Roman, not less artful, dispatched the daughter of the Marquise of Montferrat, with a company of noble virgins, to soften by their charms the obstinacy of the schismatics. Yet under this mask of zeal, a discerning eye will perceive that all was hollow and insincere in the court and church of Constantinople. According to the vicissitudes of danger and repose, the emperor advanced or retreated, alternately instructed and disavowed his ministers, and escaped from the importunate pressure by urging the duty of inquiry, the obligation of collecting the sense of his patriarchs and bishops, and the impossibility of convening them at a time when the Turkish arms were at the gates of his capital. From a review of the public transactions it will appear that the Greeks insisted on three successive measures, a succor, a council, and a final reunion, while the Latins eluded the second, and only promised the first, as a consequential and voluntary reward of the third. But we have an opportunity of unfolding the most secret intentions of Manuel, as he explained them in a private conversation without artifice or disguise. In his declining age, the emperor had associated John Philologus, the second of the name, 
and the eldest of his sons, on whom he devolved the greatest part of the authority and weight of government. One day, in the presence only of the historian Franza, his favourite chamberlain, he opened to his colleague and successor the true principle of his negotiations with the Pope. "'Our last resource,' said Manuel, against the Turks, "'is their fear of our union with the Latins, of the warlike nations of the West, who may arm for our relief and for their destruction. As often as you are threatened by the miscreants, present this danger before their eyes. Propose a council, consult on the means, but ever delay and avoid the convocation of an assembly, which cannot tend either to our spiritual or temporal emolument. The Latins are proud, the Greeks are obstinate, neither party will recede or retract, and the attempt of a perfect union will confirm the schism, alienate the churches, and leave us, without hope or defence, at the mercy of the barbarians. Impatient of this salutary lesson, the royal youth arose from his seat, and departed in silence, and the wise monarch, continued Franza, casting his eyes on me, thus resumed his discourse. My son deems himself a great and heroic prince, but, alas, our miserable age doth not afford scope for heroism or greatness. His daring spirit might have suited the happier times of our ancestors, but the present state requires not an emperor, but a cautious steward of the last relics of our fortunes. Well do I remember the lofty expectations which he built on our alliance with Mustafa, and much do I fear that this rash courage will urge the ruin of our house, and that even religion may precipitate our downfall. Yet the experience and authority of Manuel preserved the peace, and eluded the council, till in the seventy-eighth year of his age, and in the habit of a monk, he terminated his career, dividing his precious movables among his children and the poor, his physicians and his favourite servants. Of his six sons, Andronicus II was invested with the Principality of Thessalonica, and died of a leprosy soon after the sale of that city to the Venetians and its final conquest by the Turks. Some fortunate incidents had restored Peloponnesus, or the Moria, to the empire, and in his more prosperous days Manuel had fortified the narrow isthmus of six miles with a stone wall and one hundred and fifty-three towers. The wall was overthrown by the first blast of the Ottomans. The fertile peninsula might have been sufficient for the four younger brothers, Theodore and Constantine, Demetrius and Thomas, but they wasted in domestic contests the remains of their strength, and the least successful of the rivals were reduced to a life of dependence on the Byzantine palace. The eldest of the sons of Manuel, John Paleologus II, was acknowledged after his father's death as the sole emperor of the Greeks. He immediately proceeded to repudiate his wife, and to contract a new marriage with the princess of Trebizond. Beauty was in his eyes the first qualification of an empress, and the clerk had yielded to his firm assurance, that unless he might be indulged in a divorce, he would retire to a cloister, and leave the throne to his brother Constantine. The first, and in truth the only, victory of Paleologus was over a Jew, whom, after a long and learned dispute, he converted to the Christian faith, and this momentous conquest is carefully recorded in the history of the times. But he soon resumed the design of uniting the East and West, and, regardless of his father's advice, listened, as it should seem with sincerity, to the proposal of meeting the Pope in a general council beyond the Adriatic. This dangerous project was encouraged by Martin V., and coldly entertained by his successor Eugenius, till after a tedious negotiation the emperor received a summons from the Latin assembly of a new character, the independent prelates of Basil, who styled themselves the representatives and judges of the Catholic Church. The Roman pontiff had fought and conquered in the cause of ecclesiastical freedom, 
but the victorious clergy were soon exposed to the tyranny of their deliverer, and his sacred character was invulnerable to those arms which they found so keen and effectual against the civil magistrate. Their great charter, the right of election, was annihilated by appeals, evaded by trusts or commendums, disappointed by reversionary grants, and superseded by previous and arbitrary reservations. A public auction was instituted in the court of Rome, the cardinals and favourites were enriched with the spoils of nations, and every country might complain that the most important and valuable benefices were accumulated on the heads of aliens and absentees. During their residence at Avignon, the ambitions of the Pope subsided in the meaner passions of avarice and luxury. They rigorously imposed on the clergy the tributes of first-fruits and tenths, but they freely tolerated the impunity of vice, disorder, and corruption. These manifold scandals were aggravated by the great schism of the West, which continued above fifty years. In the furious conflicts of Rome and Avignon, the vices of the rivals were mutually exposed, and their precarious situations degraded their authority, relaxed their discipline, and multiplied their wants and exactions. To heal the wounds, and to restore the monarchy of the Church, the synods of Pisa and Constance were successively convened, but these great assemblies, conscious of their strength, resolved to vindicate the privileges of the Christian aristocracy. From a personal sentence against two pontiffs whom they rejected, and a third, their acknowledged sovereign whom they deposed, the fathers of Constance proceeded to examine the nature and limits of the Roman supremacy, nor did they separate till they had established the authority, above the Pope, of a general council. It was enacted that for the government and reformation of the Church, such assemblies should be held at regular intervals, and that each synod, before its dissolution, should appoint the time and place of the next subsequent meeting. By the influence of the court at Rome, the next convocation at Siena was easily eluded, but the bold and vigorous proceedings of the Council of Basil had almost been fatal to the reigning pontiff, Eugenius IV. A just suspicion of his design prompted the fathers to hasten the promulgation of their first decree, that the representatives of the church militant on earth were invested with a divine and spiritual jurisdiction over all Christians, without accepting the Pope, and that a general council could not be dissolved, prorogued, or transferred, unless by their free deliberation and consent. On the notice that Eugenius had fulminated a bull for that purpose, they ventured to summon, to admonish, to threaten, to censure, the contumacious successor of St. Peter. After many delays, to allow time for repentance, they finally declared, that unless he submitted within the term of sixty days, he was suspended from the exercise of all temporal and ecclesiastical authority. And to mark their jurisdiction over the prince as well as the priest, they assumed the government of Avignon, annulled the alienation of the sacred patrimony, and protected Rome from the imposition of new taxes. Their boldness was justified, not only by the general opinion of the clergy, but by the support and power of the first monarchs of Christendom. The emperor Sigismund declared himself the servant and protector of the synod. Germany and France adhered to their cause. The Duke of Milan was the enemy of Eugenius, and he was driven from the Vatican by an insurrection of the Roman people. Rejected at the same time by temporal and spiritual subjects, submission was his only choice. By a most humiliating bull, the Pope repealed his own acts, and ratified those of the council, incorporated his legates and cardinals with that venerable body, and seemed to resign himself to the decrees of the supreme legislature. Their fame pervaded the countries of the East, and it was in their presence that Sigismond received the ambassadors of the Turkish Sultan, 
who laid at his feet twelve large vases, filled with robes of silk and pieces of gold. The fathers of Basil aspired to the glory of reducing the Greeks, as well as the Bohemians, within the pale of the church, and their deputies invited the emperor and patriarch of Constantinople to unite with an assembly which possessed the confidence of the western nations. Paleologus was not adverse to the proposal, and his ambassadors were introduced with due honours into the Catholic Senate. But the choice of the place appeared to be an insuperable obstacle, since he refused to pass the Alps, or the Sea of Sicily, and positively required that the synod should be adjourned to some convenient city in Italy, or at least on the Danube. The other articles of this treaty were most readily stipulated. It was agreed to defray the travelling expenses of the emperor, with a train of seven hundred persons, to remit an immediate sum of eight thousand ducats for the accommodation of the Greek clergy, and in his absence to grant a supply of ten thousand ducats, with three hundred archers and some galleys, for the protection of Constantinople. The city of Avignon advanced the funds for the preliminary expenses, and the embarkation was prepared at Marseilles with some difficulty and delay. In his distress, the friendship of Paleologus was disputed by the ecclesiastical powers of the West, but the dexterous activity of a monarch prevailed over the slow debates and inflexible temper of a republic. The decrees of Basil continually tended to circumscribe the despotism of the Pope, and to erect a supreme and perpetual tribunal in the Church. Eugenius was impatient of the yoke, and the union of the Greeks might afford a decent pretense for translating a rebellious synod from the Rhine to the Po. The independence of the fathers was lost if they passed the Alps. Savoy or Avignon, to which they acceded with reluctance, were described at Constantinople as situate far beyond the pillars of Hercules. The emperor and his clergy were apprehensive of the dangers of a long navigation. They were offended by a haughty declaration, that after suppressing the new heresy of the Bohemians, the council would soon eradicate the old heresy of the Greeks. On the side of Eugenius all was smooth, yielding, and respectful, and he invited the Byzantine monarch to heal by his presence the schism of the Latin, as well as of the Eastern Church. Ferrara, near the coast of the Adriatic, was proposed for their amicable interview, and with some indulgence of forgery and theft, a surreptitious decree was procured, which transferred the synod, with its own consent, to the Italian city. Nine galleys were equipped for the service at Venice, and in the Isle of Candia. Their diligence anticipated the slower vessels of Basil, the Roman admiral was commissioned to burn, sink, and destroy, and these priestly squadrons might have encountered each other in the same seas where Athens and Sparta had formerly contended for the preeminence of glory. Assaulted by the importunity of the factions, who were ready to fight for the possession of his person, Paleologus hesitated before he left his palace and country on a perilous experiment. His father's advice still dwelt on his memory, and reason must suggest that since the Latins were divided amongst themselves, they could never unite in a foreign cause. Sigismund dissuaded the unreasonable adventure. His advice was impartial, since he adhered to the council, and it was enforced by the strange belief that the German Caesar would nominate a Greek his heir and successor in the empire of the West. Even the Turkish sultan was a counsellor whom it might be unsafe to trust, but whom it was dangerous to offend. Amurath was unskilled in the disputes, but he was apprehensive of the union of the Christians. From his own treasures he offered to relieve the wants of the Byzantine court, yet he declared with seeming magnanimity that Constantinople should be secure and inviolate, in the absence of her sovereign. The resolution of Paleologus was decided by the most splendid gifts and the most specious promises. 
He wished to escape for a while from a scene of danger and distress, and after dismissing with an ambiguous answer the messengers of the council, he declared his intention of embarking in the Roman galleys. The age of the patriarch Joseph was more susceptible of fear than of hope. He trembled at the perils of the sea, and expressed his apprehension that his feeble voice, with thirty, perhaps, of his orthodox brethren, would be oppressed in a foreign land by the power and numbers of a Latin synod. He yielded to the royal mandate, to the flattering assurance, that he would be heard as the oracle of nations, and to the secret wish of learning from his brother of the West to deliver the church from the yoke of kings. The five cross-bearers, or dignitaries, of St. Sophia, were bound to attend his person, and one of these, the great ecclesiarch or preacher, Sylvester Syropolis, has composed a free and curious history of the false union. Of the clergy that reluctantly obeyed the summons of the emperor and the patriarch, submission was the first duty and patience the most useful virtue. In a chosen list of twenty bishops, we discover the metropolitan titles of Heraclea and Cyzicus, Nice and Nicomedia, Ephesus and Trebizond, and the personal merit of Mark and Bessarion, who, in the confidence of their learning and eloquence, were promoted to the episcopal rank. Some monks and philosophers were named to display the science and sanctity of the Greek church, and the service of the choir was performed by a select band of singers and musicians. The patriarchs of Alexandria, Antioch, and Jerusalem appeared by their genuine or fictitious deputies. The primate of Russia represented a national church, and the Greeks might contend with the Latins in the extent of their spiritual empire. The precious phases of St. Sophia were exposed to the winds and waves, that the patriarch might officiate with becoming splendor. Whatever gold the emperor could procure was expended in the massy ornaments of his bed and chariot, and while they affected to maintain the prosperity of their ancient fortune, they quarrelled for the division of fifteen thousand ducats, the first alms of the Roman pontiff. After the necessary preparations, John Paleologus, with a numerous train, accompanied by his brother Demetrius, and the most respectable persons of the church and state, embarked in eight vessels with sails and oars that steered through the Turkish Straits of Gallipoli to the archipelago, the Moria, and the Adriatic Gulf. End of chapter 66, part 2